Welcome to Tribe Talk's exclusive podcast series in which we talk over multiple episodes with Dr. Daniel Gordis about the heart and soul of Israel as expressed through its history, culture, diverse and vibrant populations, and its innovations. Each 20-minute episode provides a deep understanding of Israel's complexities from the birth of Zionism to the present day. Dr. Gordis, Senior Vice President and Koret Distinguished Fellow at Shalem College in Israel, is the author of more than 10 books and is a widely read columnist in Israel and American media. TribeTalk.org is an information and resource hub for Jewish young adults. It's uniquely designed to give students the tools they need to wisely choose colleges and to address anti-Semitism and feel empowered in their Jewish identity from before they go off to college and through their college years and beyond. And now, Dr. Gordis. Hi. In this part of our discussion of the history of Zionism and the state of Israel, we're going to move away from talking about Israel's conflicts and Israel's relationship with the countries around it. And now that the state has been founded, try to look a little bit about what's actually happening inside the Jewish state. What's the society of Israel becoming? And for this part, we want to look at two different pieces in today's segment and then two different pieces in the next segment. In today's segment, we'll look at the issues of socialism and the status of Arabs in the newly founded Jewish state. And then our next segment, we'll talk about Mizrahi Jews, those who come from North Africa, Yemen, Iraq, Iran, what's called the Levant. And then we'll talk about the intellectual life of the young state and how the intellectual freedoms of Israel shape it in its early years and continue to shape it until today. So for now, we're going to go back to the beginning and look at the socialism of the early state and the role of Israel's Arabs in its early years. The vast majority of conversations that most of us have about Israel are about Israel in conflict. We can talk about the problem of the Palestinians, we can talk about the West Bank, we can talk about the embargo on Gaza, we can talk about annexation, we can talk about Hezbollah in Lebanon, we talk about Iran, the Iran deal, was it good for Israel, was it bad for Israel? Uh, was this administration in America good for Israel or bad for Israel? Is the Trump plan good for Israel, fair, bad for Israel, etc. But what all of those conversations have in common is that they are about Israel in conflict. And as I said once before in our conversation, it's like saying, let me tell you about America. There was a war of independence in 1776 and a war of 1812 and a civil war and a first world war and a second world war and a Korean war and a Vietnam war, etc., etc., etc. It doesn't tell you anything about America. It tells you about a part of America's history, but it doesn't tell you anything about the soul of what America becomes. And you can't understand America only by looking at its wars. And to be sure, you can't understand Israel by focusing only on its conflicts. So what we want to look at in this particular segment are three brief elements. First, Israel's first elections. We want to talk a little bit about how the Knesset actually works, how do elections lead to Israel's governments. And then I want to speak briefly about German reparations for the Holocaust, which become very important in Israeli life. So first, let's talk about Israel's first elections. Israel's first elections take place on January 25th, 1949, just as the War of Independence is winding down. And I'll read to you just a couple of very brief paragraphs written by an ultra-Orthodox rabbi, Rabbi Moshe Yekutiel Alpert, who writes the following in his diary about what happened that morning of January 25th, 49, when Israel holds its first elections. He writes as follows. The time is 5.35 a.m. I woke up. Me, my wife, and my brother, Reb Shimon Leib, and my brother-in-law, Rabbi Benatel Seldovin, and my son, Dov, 
After drinking our morning coffee, we dressed in our Sabbath attire in honor of this great and sacred day. And then he quotes a verse from Psalms, because this is the day that the Lord has made to be happy and rejoice. And then he goes on, because after thousands of years or more of exile, since the six days of creation, we have never been blessed with such a day to be able to go and vote in a Jewish state. And then he recites this very famous Jewish blessing. Blessed is the one who has kept us alive and sustained us and brought us to this time. And then he writes, and then I experienced the holiest moment in my life, a moment that my father and my grandfather were not privileged to experience. Only I in my lifetime was privileged to be at such a holy and pure moment. And then he quotes the Bible again, happy and blessed am I, happy and blessed is my portion. And then he writes, I said the Shehechayanu blessing and I deposited the envelope in the ballot box. And then this ultra-Orthodox ultra rabbi goes back home, and then he puts on tefillin, and then he recites his morning prayers. In other words, typically the first thing that he would do in the morning is get up and go pray. But that morning, he puts on special Sabbath and holiday garb. He goes and votes, and then he prays. It gives you a little bit of a sense of how holy the idea of a Jewish democracy seemed to people from right and left at that particular time. Uh, the police are on alert and everybody's ready for possible unrest. The, the elections go off without a hitch. The percentage of people who vote is very high. The results of the election are mixed. David Ben-Gurion's party, which is called Mapai, it'll eventually become the Labour Party, gets 46 seats. Menachem Begin's party, which is called Cheirut, it'll eventually become the Likud, gets 14 seats. So Labor wins. Cheirut is a very, very distant party down in 14. And in 1951, Cheirut will actually do even worse. Menachem Begin's party will go down from 14 to 8. And Menachem Begin, the same person who had run the Irgun, the person who was involved in that Altalena incident, decides that he's going to take a break from Israeli politics. He will be called back in the reparations issue, but we'll come back to that in just a couple of minutes. Now, I mentioned that Labor got 46 seats and that Cheirut got 14. What does that all really mean in terms of how an Israeli government is created? And here we'll talk a little bit about how the Israeli government actually works, because a lot of people don't understand it. There are 120 seats in the Israeli Knesset. That number wasn't pulled out of thin air. Jewish tradition has it that with the return of the Jews after five uh, 87 BCE, when they were exiled to Babylonia and came back 70 years later, they established an organization called the Men of the Great Assembly, Anshe HaKneset HaGdola. Historians disagree as to how much it really existed and how much it was, it was really kind of a figment of Jewish imagination. For our purposes now, that doesn't really matter. Jewish tradition had it that there was this great assembly and that it had 120 seats in it, and it was called Anshe HaKneset the men of the great assembly. So the word Knesset means assembly, and the modern Israeli parliament takes its name from that previously existing entity, and it takes that number of 120 from that previously existing entity. And basically how it works is this. There's 120 seats. If you win 50% of the vote, you get 60 of the seats. If you win 25% of the vote, then you would get 30 of the seats, and so on and so forth. You need to have a certain minimum percentage, and that percentage has changed 
In Israeli law today, it's 3.25%. So if you get 1% of the vote, you don't actually get any seats. You have to reach at least 3.25% of the vote, and then you can start getting members of the Knesset. Now, why does all this matter to us very much? It matters because in all of Israeli history, no party has ever gotten 60 seats. None. No parties even come close to getting 60 seats, which means that every Israeli government is actually a coalition. So the party that gets the most seats then reaches out to other parties and says, will you join my coalition? I have 45 seats, you have 10 seats. With us, we'll have 55 seats. Then we gotta find the party that has six or seven seats. And then the three of us together will create a majority in the Knesset and we'll be the ruling parties, we'll be the government, we'll be the coalition. But of course, those other parties who join the coalition want something in return. They say, what ministries am I gonna get? Or what's your policy gonna be on X, Y, and Z? And I'm gonna insist on this for me to join your coalition. And the reason that matters for us is that the way it works out in Israeli politics, the left block and the right block are basically evenly split in Israel. Then there is an Arab block, and there's an ultra-Orthodox block, and there are other blocks. The two biggest blocks are the Jewish left and the Jewish right. There's not much of a middle. Um, and they together don't really, either of them, get a majority. And they need somebody in the middle, which could be either the ultra-Orthodox parties or a party like uh, Avigdor Lieberman's party. Lieberman actually kind of is willing to go with either the left or the right, depending on what policies they're willing to commit to. And therefore, there's a lot of jockeying and horse trading that goes on after every Israeli election. Thank you for joining us. We encourage you to listen to the next podcast in this series with Dr. Gordis and remind you to visit our website, tribetalk.org, for more resources.